Hey, welcome to TBT's podcast. I'm Dan Friel. On this edition, we'll check in with Jason Curry, the GM of Big Apple Basketball. Big Apple Basketball is actually a nonprofit based out of New York City, and BAB has played some of the most thrilling games in TBT history. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Hey, if you missed the news last week, TBT announced its 2016 plans, $2 million, winner take all, $200,000, 10% of that prize is going to go to the fans. Again, check out thetournament.com for all the information that you might need about TBT 2016. There's a lot of great information in there, whether you're a fan, a player, or if you want to run your own team yourself. Remember that if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, you can subscribe. Just go to the top right-hand corner, hit that little subscribe button, and while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It'll help spread the word. Thanks. Hey, Jason. How you doing, Dan? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. That's great. So listen, I wanted to touch base. Uh, you're a two-time participant with Big Apple Basketball in TBT. And I'm just curious, uh, we're looking to see BAB back in TBT in 2016. Yes, yes. Ho- hopefully, if uh, if we receive enough of the uh, fan votes like we've done the, the, the past two years, I'm able to uh, accumulate uh, enough talent, then uh, yes, we, we, we definitely love to come back. Uh, I'd like the outcome to be a little bit different, but i love to participate again. I want to talk about the outcome in 2015 in just a second, but I wanted to start with where you were at the beginning here with the votes. You've done excellent in voting the last couple of years, and I'm really wondering how it is that you do this. I mean, I know you've got an organization behind you, and I do want to talk about what Big Apple Basketball is, but it seems like you do a lot of a lot of grinding, a lot of hustling to get those votes. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not savvy enough to uh, figure out the uh, TBT social media aspect. That social media aspect of it, as far as uh, posting stuff on Facebook and, and Twitter, people don't seem to be quite as responsive to me on that. So uh, I, I, I guess I just uh, I'm a little bit old school. I, I pick up the phone and send text messages, basically, you know, kindly twisting the arm of everybody I know, not giving them much of an of an uh of an alternative other than to uh to vote for us and i i literally go through my 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 phone log my cell phone my email list anybody that i can think of to say hey hey vote for us not asking them to vote just telling them here this is what you need to do that's Help great me. that's like number one persuasive <laughs> is don't give anybody an out right so what is the what's the pitch like i mean do people are people still at this point Jason's skeptical of you when you're telling them, "Hey, vote for me in this thing, and maybe you could win some money too." That kind of pitch. No, I mean, I mean, to be quite honest, I think people are really, you know, just voting for myself and the organization, you know, just based upon you know support of me just asking. You know, you know, during the first year, I'm not sure how many people really understood the concept of it other than hey we're doing something to support jason and big apple basketball if it's going to help them we're on board but i think as we got into year two especially a lot of the people who had voted the previous year we're you know were already anticipating coming back and they understood exactly you know what the whole method and everything is in terms of the the um, collaboration of Big Apple Basketball, TBT, and exactly what it was leading up to. And then as you mentioned, uh, the second year, there was some actual incentive to the people to vote as far as them potentially winning money as well. So, you know, that undoubtedly helped with, uh, you know, accumulating more votes in addition to uh, what we did the first year. It definitely did. And, you know, in looking at the fans that you accumulated on this on this page, you had a lot of people helping you. You know, Yvonne T. Who's Yvonne yeah. T? Yeah. 
Yep, yep, that that that's my mother. Yeah. <laughs> that's like your son, num- son, literally son. your number one <laughs> fan, not only in real life but on on digital uh, as well. But she was out, yep. you know, beating the bushes and trying to get as many people to vote for you too. Yeah, well, I, I guess you can see where I get my uh, aggressive persuasion from. You know? so, <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, she she definitely did a tremendous job for us. I mean, you know, I had a few other close friends that that really really you know, help, whether it's, you know, people in their, their, uh, friends, their family, people who work with them. You know, I really, uh, had a lot of support last year, you know, outside of myself and my own personal grind, which, you know, definitely helped us get to one of the, uh, top vote getting teams in TBT. And it really was impressive because there were a total of 48 people that recruited another person for you, which, you know, when you think about how difficult it was to get into that Northeast region in 2015, that's something that I think is going to really be an impactful element of any team's vote getting this year is to get as many people as possible uh, out there reaching out to their own networks. Yep. And I think one of the things that you mentioned in the past, you know, which will hopefully help uh, most people who've participated in the past and, you know, definitely myself and Big Apple Basketball is that now if we can obtain the list of people who have voted for us in the past, which will now make it easier to contact them again and get them back on board as opposed to, you know, starting from scratch each year. It, it you know, something like that would, would help um, in terms of the overall voting process for, for each of the individual teams. Yeah, absolutely. And building that fan base from one year to the next is really, it's going to be key. It was key last year. It'll be even more important this year. That Northeast region last year was stacked. I mean, were you looking at some of the teams applying to that at any point, Jason, and, and thinking, man, this is going to be tough? Uh. I don't necessarily know if I thought to myself it's going to be tough, but I legitimately thought that the Northeast region was the toughest region out of all of the all of the regions. You know, and I, I thought that, um, you know, teams that might have been maybe top six or seven overall could have easily been one of the top two or three seeds, you know, in other regions just. You know, when you looked at the uh, the talent evaluation that, that you have, and obviously at the end of the day, you have to go on the court and prove it. But, you know, like anything else, you know, the, the easier road that you have of not having to play as many tough teams, and now you put yourself in a situation where maybe you can make it to the Final Four or the semifinals or the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, and not have to play as many tough teams. And ultimately you put yourself in a better position where you say, okay, we've gotten this far. Now we only have to get through one game where there might be other teams who lost earlier that might've been able to get to that same point. But as you mentioned, the Northeast region was so tough that really, you know, right out the gate, you know, every game, you know, was, was extremely competitive. Do you expect that that same sort of phenomenon that happened in the Northeast last year where you had this major jump in quality from, you know, 2014 to 2015 is going to happen in the rest of the regions too? Uh, Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think just because the Northeast region is where the event was initially started, and I think it's gained the most traction in the Northeast and definitely on the East Coast. Um, You know, I, I, I'd be shocked if it didn't happen, but at the same time, I think that those other regions will be better than they were the first year. What was your impression of the event the first year you came down? I know that um, I should ask you, I guess, how did you find out about it in 2014 and what made you want to jump in? Yep. Um, During the 
first year, Matt Kennedy reached out to me. Um, and, and Matt and I, uh, had had a previous relationship with just some, uh, basketball dealings and works here in the New York City area. So I remember he had reached out to me in January of 2014, uh, mentioning the event to me. Um, you know, I'm not going to say I was skeptical, but I really didn't quite understand, uh, the, the entire concept of it. But then, you know, I might have gotten a follow up from somebody else and I might have gotten an email or read about it, you know, a, a second or third time. And then by that point, it was kind of, you know, catching my interest. And then, you know, I followed up that way, you know, so, uh, you know, Matt was definitely the uh, initial person that, that it reached out to me about the, uh, you know, the whole TBT tournament and concept. And so in 2014, when you pulled the team together, um, really a lot of really high end talent, not a ton of guys in the team. So I think you were playing with five that whole weekend and made that run to the semifinals uh, where you lost in overtime. But um, how did the team actually come together? Smush Parker was the name that stood out, I think, probably to most casual observers. But you had a lot of really talented guys on that team. Corsley Edwards, Russell yeah. Robinson, Luke Bonner. Uh, how did that all come together? Yeah, um, I mean, I really just used a lot of the basketball contacts and resources that I have. One of the things that helps me is that I coach a team here in New York City during the summer in the Nike Pro City Summer League. So a lot of the types of players that I'd be looking to attract for the TBT tournament, I'm already involved with on an annual basis based upon our summer league uh, that we have. So uh, trying to identify players wasn't going to be that difficult for me. And my theory, you know, has, has really been, you know, for instance, uh, and I think the Nike Pro City Summer League is probably one of the top summer leagues in the country in, in terms of uh, um, pro basketball. It's an NBA-sanctioned summer league. And two out of the last three years, uh, we've made it to the championship. Unfortunately, we haven't lost, but but, but we've made it. So my, my whole mindset is that, you know, if we can put together a team that consistently makes it to the championship uh, here in a, in a true pro pro uh pro summer summer league and summer setting then i'd like to think that with this same type of uh format that's the type of players that i'd be looking to attract so a guy like smush parker plays in the nike pro city summer league Corsley edwards has played for me before luke bonner had played for me in the nike pro city summer league uh lance goldborn plays in that league and russell robinson um I'm good friends with uh, one of the assistant coaches at the University of Kansas where he played and he connected Russ and I. So, I mean, realistically speaking, outside of Russell, all of those other guys have been a part of what I've been doing, you know, as far as just our regular summer basketball circuit. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what Big Apple basketball is. For those that don't know, it's a 501c3 in New York, but I'd really love to hear in your words what it is that BAB does and, and what your mission is. Yep. So uh, we're a not-for-profit organization, uh, as you mentioned, based here in New York City. And we put together a series of events uh, throughout the year to try to, from a scholastic level, to try to help as many New York City area youth uh, gain exposure for college scholarship opportunities. Uh, and with that being said, uh, we're also involved with collegiate and professional players during the off season. Uh, with basketball skill training and development. And we try to get a lot of those guys to also come back and mentor some of the younger kids as well. Um, so 
throughout the year, we put together a series of events during the high school basketball season. We do two events, uh, one in December and one in January, where we have showcases and we invite college coaches from around the country to see these high school student athletes for college scholarship opportunities and exposure. Um, this upcoming April, we're uh, partnering with the NCAA and we're hosting an academic eligibility seminar to try to make as many student athletes, parents, and guidance counselors aware of the academic rule changes that are going into effect with NCAA student athletes beginning on the 1st of August. And then during the summer, we also have the programs for the college and pro players who are here during the summer. So uh, I'd almost like to consider ourselves like a basketball one-stop shop where we work with youth players, uh, high school players, college players, and professional players in, in a lot of different capacities in which we're using basketball as that tool, but then being able to help people in other areas of their lives in which they might need it at that particular point. What's interesting, I think, in hearing you talk about that in, in the research that in the reading that I've done myself about BAB is that a lot of times I think the perception is that every kid that plays college basketball on a scholarship has been highly recruited since the time that he was 13 years old and that there's plenty of exposure for everybody. And I think it seems like the reality of that is, is somewhat different, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, and, and there's generally, you know, a few cases um, where kids lack exposure. One, a kid might go to a high level high school that receives a lot of attention, but if a kid is not getting a lot of playing time because they're sitting on a bench or getting limited minutes because they're playing behind all city or all American caliber players, then they're going to get limited exposure, even though they play at a high level school. Uh, another instance, you might have a kid who has a lot of talent, but they don't play at a high level school and they might play on the outskirts of the city or maybe even the school within the city that doesn't have the opportunity to compete in exposure events or maybe play on high level AAU teams. And then they, they also might get overlooked. And then, um, there's also instances where, um, you know, high school coaches don't always have connections or resources with a lot of colleges. I mean, you know, as strangely as it sounds, I've even had uh, high school coaches who are probably some of the biggest high school coaches in this particular area, but they might have a kid who's division two or division three. And the reality is that some of those coaches don't even have strong relationships with division two or division three schools because a lot of their stronger relationships or with the John Calipari's or, you know, the, the Roy Williams or the St. John's or the Villanova's because those are the types of guys that they're used to rubbing elbows with because they have such high level players. But then when you start to trickle down and say, okay, well, what about these kids on a division two or division three level? Then that's where, uh, you know, Big Apple basketball has been able to really have a major play as far as helping, uh, student athletes, parents, you know, and college coaches just try to connect and be that bridge. How did you get involved with this? I know that you play basketball yourself at St. Michael's. I mean, do you see yourself in some of these kids? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, my main reason for starting this, you know, one, because, you know, when I was coming up as a student athlete, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of strong, um, adults and mentors and basketball people that understood how to propel me 
into uh, you know being a, a quality student athlete and also um, just having opportunities for a lot of success. Um, my primary reason for starting uh, our program and the first youth program that I started was called the Scholarship Games, and that was um, started to identify unsigned seniors. Uh, who lacked scholarship offers or exposure and inviting college coaches to New York for a one-day showcase to try to help these kids get college scholarships. And the main reason I started that is because I'm still active in the basketball community myself. I still play recreationally, and I come across a lot of kids or a lot of parents who I noticed, you know, I might be playing at the YMCA, and, and the kid might be, you know, 16, 17 years old, about to graduate high school, and I can clearly see the kid can play, and then I start to engage him in conversation and find out, you know, the kid has pretty good grades. I can tell they can play, but they don't have any resources for college. Or, um, you know, at the time when I first started this back in 1999, I was also working as a college basketball color commentator and sideline reporter. So now when I'm traveling the country working college games, College coaches are coming to me, you know, kind of jokingly, but serious at the same time saying, hey, Jason, you know, when are you going to help us get some kids from New York City? When are you going to help us recruit some kids? So I noticed that, you know, from both sides, I had college coaches who are looking to tap into the New York City market to recruit. And then I'm still around a lot of kids and parents in the community who are seeking help. So that's really how I just came up with the vision is for Big Apple Basketball as far as just trying to do things to help youth in the community. So as you're in 1999 kind of making this realization that there's this this bridge that you can you can build here between some of these, you know, like you were saying, maybe Division two, Division three, low Division one schools. um, Did you actually quit what you because you were in television production in a couple of capacities, right? I mean, did you quit your full time job and jump headlong into this or how did that come about? Yeah, yeah. I, I still tell people to this day, I'm not sure if that was one of the brighter decisions I've made, but yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the time I, I was working, as I mentioned, you know, during the college basketball season, I was doing a lot of television and radio on-air work as a color commentator and sideline reporter. And then I was also working full-time um, here in New York City uh, in video editing and production uh, working at local stations like New York One News, and I worked at the NBA and CNN and uh, WNBC and WABC, so I was able to move up the ladder pretty quickly in a short period of time between doing that type of work and also doing my college basketball work. And um, I started Big Apple Basketball in 1999, so from 99 until 2003, I was just operating once a year as a pro touring team uh, in which we travel around during the month of November playing preseason exhibition games against Division I colleges and universities. I started our youth program in 2003 as far as hosting events, and I did that um, again on a part-time basis until about 2005. And it just got to the point where in 2005, you know, I was yearning to do so much more with Big Apple basketball that I literally get to the television station and any break that I get, you know, I'm making calls for Big Apple basketball. I'm trying to do things for Big Apple basketball. And I just found that I didn't have enough time in a day to devote to what I really wanted to do as far as my passion 
for Big Apple basketball. And I, I literally, you know, walked into work one day. I remember ABC. I was at the time I was working at WNBC and WABC. And uh, I literally walked in the office one day and, you know, just said I was done. And, you know, Conley said that, you know, I was quitting. I was stopping. And at that point, I had no business plan for Big Apple basketball. I had no sponsors. I had, you know, all I had was the the money in my pocket in my bank account, and I, I literally, you know, uh, you know, just dove in head first with no plan, no knowledge, and everything that I've built from from that point till now has just been learning as I go. And how? I mean, I don't undersell it too. I mean, what you've built is pretty is pretty big. I mean, there's events all throughout the year. You have one of the top invitationals, certainly in New York, but if not the country, uh, each uh, winter, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely proud of, of, uh, you know, what I've been able to do, but you know, the, the competitive spirit in me, and I think anyone who's ambitious, you know, you always want more, you always want perfection, you know? So when I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, where I'd like to be and maybe where I hope to be, and maybe even in my mind where I think I deserve to be, I'm not there, but at the same time, you know, to be able to take a step back and look, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of what I've been able to accomplish really working, you know, as a one man band, you know, having no staff, you know, all volunteers. And this is just myself, you know, working from home, you know, my my blood, sweat and tears going into this, you know, trials and tribulations, learning as I go. You know, I'm I'm very, very proud of what I've been able to do. And most importantly, you know, the amount of kids and families I've been able to help throughout the the process as well. One thing that you haven't really had to learn as you go, Jason, it's apparent to me is, is the game of basketball. And you alluded to it earlier, but, uh, in 2014, you guys made the semifinals, um, losing to uh, barstool, but there was a lot of really hands-on coaching that went into getting there for you, especially, you know, learning how to manage minutes, put people in the right positions. Um, there was a great end of the game, uh, shot that Russell Robinson hit against Hoopville, uh, in the quarterfinals in 2014, and we got you on video, and your reaction to it is priceless. Have you? Is that the moments of of basketball, those game winning shots, the last second where you're just overcome with emotion that keep you coming back to the game? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm a I'm a basketball junkie anyway, so I mean, you know, win, lose, or draw, I mean, it's just the game of basketball will will always keep me coming back. You know, just from a competitive nature, but those are the memories that you always remember in terms of just holding on to something and remembering those good experiences that you've had to be a part of something that will always want you to come back for more, hoping to regain and, and, and recapture that magic. What about in 2015? It seemed like you had a couple of close games and lost a nail biter to um, sideline cancer, which would have sent you to Chicago uh, for the round of 16. But it seemed like you again had that knack at the end of the game of drawing up the right play at the right time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think a lot of that just kind of, you know, the more you're, the more you have experience with that. And I think a, a lot of my experience personally, especially in the pro city, uh, pro setting, uh, comes from our participation in the pro city summer league where the games are so competitive. You know, you learn that you can be down big early, but there's always time for a comeback if you just kind of, uh, you know, maintain your composure and, and, and keep your troops rallied and, and, uh, and have enough talent, you know. So I think that 
a lot of those things come into play when you talk about, you know, all of the obstacles that might come into play with uh, participation in TBT. So, you know, last year, you know, as you mentioned, I think both games we played, you know, the first game uh, to Basketball City, we were probably losing, you know, 80% of that game and was able to make a comeback at the end, you know, but, you know, realistically speaking, I'd probably say Basketball City outplayed us, but we were able to just kind of hang in there long enough to make a run at the end and, and come away with the victory. And then the same thing, you know, with the second game that we played, you know, we were losing, you know, really didn't have a, a lot of chemistry. Uh, but one of the things that I was really just trying to get into our players minds is that, you know, it doesn't have to be pretty and this is survive in advance. So as long as we can just, you know, keep it close and, and, and do what we need to do to just kind of, you know, chip away bit by bit and put ourselves in position to win, which we did uh, at the end of the second game. And I thought that we had a couple of good looks and we had things, you know, that played in our favor. But, you know, for the for the one of the few times in the TBT event, you know, we didn't get the uh, the bounce in our favor and wound up losing. What is it about um, kind of playing in that environment of that one and done that people and just in your experience it seems to people either kind of flourish in it or they kind of wilt in it and i'm wondering if you think there's any kind of common denominator between people that handle it well and people that don't yeah i think uh there are probably a few things i, I think it generally stops you know starts at the top with your leadership you know so if you have general managers or coaches who are leading your teams and organizations that have experience and as far as is um you know, really just being able to maintain the composure and just keep everybody even keel as much as possible to focus on the end goal. I think that that helps. I think the more experience you have on your roster with players as far as uh, being true professionals, um, and I don't necessarily mean just being professionals as far as level of play, but being professionals as far as how they carry themselves, because a lot of times, you know, those are going to be the types of things that you're going to need when you face adversity because, you know, for everybody at some point in time throughout the TBT tournament, you're going to face adversity. And, you know, are you going to have a group of guys that are going to be able to come together and and fight through it? Or when you hit that adversity, are you going to have a team that, you know, guys are going to start complaining and, and now go their own separate ways and aren't going to be mentally tough to get through it. So I think that, you know, you know, those two things. And then the, the last part is talent. You know, if, if, if you have enough talent on your roster where you're able to overcome slow starts or, or, um, you know, it comes to an end of the game and you need certain guys to just be able to make big plays for you, then that's probably the third component you know, as far as really, you know, getting through those types of times that you need in a one-and-done uh, type format. One of the uh, many unique things about entry of teams in TPT is that you can actually enter as a nonprofit. So, in other words, if you have a school, uh, the school could enter as the actual participant and the winnings can either be donated. Um, the winnings will donate directly to the school and then the school or the nonprofit can then pay the players. I'm kind of being a little bit long-winded in saying this, but... Big Apple Basketball last year actually entered as the nonprofit entry, meaning that the money would have gone to Big Apple Basketball, um, and there would have been some percentage that you could then pay 
the players as essentially contractors of the nonprofit. Was that difficult to convince the guys to go ahead and do it that way, uh, knowing that some percentage of that money would actually go towards the organization rather than to them? No, I, I think for the most part, you know, the guys that we had involved uh, with us uh, all know me personally and and are part of what we do outside of TBT or are aware of what we do with Big Apple Basketball. Um, and at the end of the day, I think from a player's standpoint, they just want to be able to uh, be assured that they're going to get their money. You know, so as long as they have the confidence to know that, okay, I'm not directly going to get this money from TBT, but TBT is going to pay Big Apple Basketball, and we trust that Big Apple Basketball will then do the right thing by us to pay us. Then I think, you know, at the end of the day, as long as the players know that they're going to get their money, and, you know, we tried to be as fair as possible, you know, in terms of, and I can't remember exactly what, you know, percentage or portion of it was going to go to Big Apple Basketball, but we tried to be as fair as possible to make sure that the players were also going to get, you know, a considerable amount of money and trying to be as competitive as possible with what other teams were playing, you know, were paying players as well. Have you thought about any kind of fundraising opportunities that you might do throughout the spring in concert with the application period and the voting? Do you have any ideas? <laughs> have I'm ready. <laughs> well, I mean, you could auction off uniforms. You know, you could pay for travel expenses by doing, um, you know, certain activities. You know, you could have, um, say, a clinic that kids pay 25 bucks a piece for and you use the proceeds to pay for travel. I'm just curious if those sort of things have kind of uh, crossed your mind about um, ways that you can integrate both building awareness and funds for the nonprofit along with the actual act of, of getting people to vote for your team. Uh, no, we, we haven't gotten to that point yet. I mean, to be quite honest, you know, most of our fundraising time and effort really goes into our youth programs and, and trying to do as much as we can to keep everything afloat with that. Um, you know, so that, that's our, our definitely more of the, the focus at this point, but, you know, we'd always be open to opportunities and different options that, would make most sense, especially, you know, with something like TBT, where we already know that we'd like to participate in, in any ways that we can figure out how to make it most cost effective on our part would, you know, would, would definitely be smart. And I'd be open to any and all opportunities to do so. We'll have to catch up after this and I'll, I'll give you some ideas that I have. Um, one other thing I wanted to kind of talk about the last sort of area was you mentioned you're a huge basketball junkie and it was really great. I thought last year you came to the semifinals in New York at Fordham and you brought three real legends of, of New York basketball with you. Uh, Howard Garfinkel, Pee Wee Kirkland and Joe the Destroyer Hammond. I was hoping you could talk about how those kind of legends of New York basketball relate to what your thoughts are on basketball today in New York. Yeah, I mean, th those are are three iconic figures, um, you know, here in New York City, you know, and even, you know, Howard Garfinkel, you know, e even beyond, you know, for, you know, what he what he's done with founding Five Star Basketball and the amount of of lives and, and student athletes, high-level players, pro coaches, college coaches that he's been able to, to – uh, you know, affect with what, what he's done. But, um, you know, I'm just fortunate enough to be able to have people like that who I'm close enough with that, 
you know, I can pick up the phone and it kind of, kind of goes back to what I even said, as far as, you know, the fan voting, you know, none of those guys really knew or understood much about the TBT concept or really, you know, what they were coming to, but, you know, just so on the, the basis of, of the relationship that I have with them, they were, you know, they, they came out to support the overall, you know, event, but those guys, you know, when you talk about a guy like Pee Wee Kirkland and Joe Hammond, you know, now you're really talking about, you know, hardcore New York City basketball legends. And, you know, I, I found it very interesting that when I brought them to Fordham, um, Lynn, Lynn Elmore came over to us and I got a chance to, uh, to talk to Lynn. And I asked Lynn to take a picture and he stopped me. And he, he didn't realize that I came with Joe and Pee Wee. And he said, oh, no, 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 you don't want to get a picture with me. He said, these two guys right here, these are the real two New York legends you need to take pictures with, you know? <laughs> so, great. I mean, even to hear, you know, even to hear something like that from a guy like Lynn Elmore, who played at the University of Maryland and was an All-American and had a great career in the NBA and now what he's doing post-NBA as far as his broadcast work for a guy like him to even see, you know, uh, guys like that and come over and acknowledge them and to see the type of excitement that he had when he saw them really puts everything in perspective. But, you know, when you really talk about New York City summer basketball, which TBT is now making its mark in as, as far as a national uh, reputable tournament, summer basketball tournament, you know, and then you talk about summer basketball in New York City, you know, Pee Wee Kirkland and Joe Hammond are towards the top of the iconic list as far as as what they represent here in New York City. And you know, for those that are are not old enough to remember, but I mean, these two guys basically dominated uh, summer basketball in New York for a long time—five to ten years, I would imagine, right? Yeah, I I, I never got a chance to see them play, um, you know, during their heyday, but. You know, with all the stories that I've heard and, and research that I've done and interviews that I've seen and, and talking to guys who were in their era, uh, I mean, th th those two guys played against the best of the best. Um, even, you know, a guy like uh, Pee Wee Kirkland, who played collegiately at Norfolk State and set all types of college basketball records. So not only did he do it in the playground setting, but he also did it you know, in, a, in an organized setting and then was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. And then there's the legendary story of how the Lakers came to New York City to see Joe Hammond work out and actually offered him a contract, which he wound up turning down. So these guys, you know, even without me ever having seen them play, but just with the amount of factual stories that are out there and you watch interviews, you have to say, man, these guys, had to have been pretty good for professional teams to want to come in and sign them the contract. It's kind of amazing when you look back at that era of basketball that a guy could turn down a contract like that at all. I mean, doesn't that just speak to how far the game has come in the last, you know, 40 to 45 years? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I, I guess that means it really depends on, uh, you know, how much money those guys were making in their lives outside of basketball in relation to, you know, what these guys are doing now. But, yeah, but definitely, yeah, yeah de definitely with the amount of money. <laughs> that's a good, that's that a very is, diplomatic <laughs> way. That's a good answer. I like that one. Um, Jason, this is really, this has really been a pleasure talking to you. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing BAB back on the website when we launch on April 1. 
Um, I'll stay in touch. I really would love to give you some maybe ideas I might have about some fundraising opportunities for BAB and any other nonprofit entities that are thinking about entering. Please hit us up and we'll let you know what we think. Again, I appreciate your time, Jason. Okay. Th- th- thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you. Okay.